Let's prepare now for the ministry of God's Word. If you would please open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Today we look upon the very famous story of Ananias and Sapphira. And for context's sake, we're going to begin our reading at verse 32 from chapter 4. If you would please stand together. In doing so, we express our reverence for God's written word. For the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the living God will endure forever. So let's strive to hear and heed his word faithfully together. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's Father, read God's word. Let's pray together. We confess, O Lord, that apart from the ministry of your Spirit, these words, like Ananias and Sapphira, would fall flat and lifeless before us. But we know, O Lord, that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that Scripture was inspired. We also know, O Lord, that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that the Word of God has been preserved in its integrity down to this very day. And lastly and climactically, we believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will continue to grant life to your church, enabling us to believe and even to obey the truth of your dear word. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to ask you a rather unfortunate question. Who is the most famous couple in all the world? I'm not even going to name them because I'm tired of hearing about them. I remember when news was news and not just an endless litany of soap opera-like clips. And yet you know the couple of whom I speak. 
uh, arguably before them, it might have been famous kings and their queens, or in the uh, broad body of literature, stories like Romeo and Juliet. But think of the moment uh, in the Bible, who would you say is the most famous couple? If you peddled down the pages of the Old Testament, maybe you're thinking of Adam and Eve, or Abe and Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and if I pause, would you remember his wife's name, Rachel? Or as we step into the soil of the New Testament, who would be the most famous couple there? Well, there are probably two contenders, Joseph and Mary, of course, and right on their heels, Ananias and Sapphira. But one of the things that we quickly learn is that famous and faithful are not always the same thing. In fact, many become famous not because they were faithful. And sadly, that is the story that we see today in our text, but we will find a way to end on a note that is not entirely sad. Let's work through it using the help of the outline that you have there in the bulletin, thinking first about the deceit that we find in the heart. I'm going to suggest that before we dive in, uh, drill down into this text, there are two portions of a backdrop that will be helpful for us to set behind this text in order to understand it well. And the first of which is altogether outside of the book of Acts. It's actually in the Old Testament book of Joshua. I said early on when we began our study of the book of Acts, in many ways, the book of Acts is the New Testament version of the book of Joshua. They have many things in common at a high level. Those things are easy to see. Both of them follow foundational books focused on this question, what happened in the beginning? So if the first few books of the Bible focus on the beginning of creation and the beginning of the people of Israel, the Gospels begin with new creation and the new people of God. If the Pentateuch ends with the people of God in the wilderness, that's exactly where the book of Acts begins. If Joshua is the story of conquest, so also, in a certain sense, is the book of Acts, the word of God spreading, both of them showing the kingdom of God advancing, and both of them alike have stories of fame and failure. In the book of Joshua, there is one story very much like the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's the story of Achan and his family in Joshua chapter 7, where there a man named Israel, as the Israelites are going through, plundering uh, particularly the city of Jericho, a man named Achan steals something devoted and he hides it. And he lies about it. And he is caught both by man and also by God. And he is put to death. And when this happens, fear comes over the people of God. A good and healthy fear. Not all fear is bad. Something very similar happens here in Acts uh, chapter 5, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. But there's one more piece of backdrop that I think uh, you may already see, and it's the story of Barnabas. That's why we read from verse 32, Barnabas, whose name is formerly Joseph, uh, like the rest in the new church, in this early fledgling church that we see now, early in the book of Acts, is not only sharing, but selling their possessions. It's a remarkable stroke of sacrifice. It's a remarkable display of faith, kindness, and generosity. And Barnabas does this wholly and completely. No one forces him to do it. No one compels him to do it. What he does for the church and the Lord of the church, he does freely and wholeheartedly. Uh, He begins to model what it means to find his true treasure in heaven and to live that out with his life. 
And I want to point this out. I, I mentioned it last week, but I think it's a really big deal. Uh, that Barnabas, who we met in the last section, is the first named voluntary missionary in the New Testament. You have the apostles and then Barnabas. This man who in Acts 4 gives his treasure away. By the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, he's given his whole life away. It really is a beautiful portrait. But now we have to come to two people whose names are better known than even that of Barnabas. And isn't it a sad commentary on history that you know Ananias and Sapphira better? Even better than faithful Barnabas. Just to say their names, Ananias and Sapphira, it's kind of dark. You know what I mean? You almost expect somebody to say, ooh. Their names invoke a sort of darkness that stills the soul and kind of dims the mood. They walk onto the scene with very little introduction whatsoever. We are not told where they are from. We're not told how they got here or even why they are here. And in some ways, even their true spiritual condition remains something of a mystery by the end of the story. On the one hand, here they are as part of the church. On the one hand, here they are selling their possessions and giving to the work of the new church. And yet, uh, these who seem to demonstrate this big step of faith, this remarkable uh, act of faith, clearly come to us as liars that don't end so well in the story. Arguably, Ananias and Sapphira are following the crowd. There was now at this time a big stir in Jerusalem. The day of Pentecost has occurred. Miracles are repeatedly being done. Outdoor preaching is being received with remarkable success, so much so that those doing the preaching have now for the first time been arrested. There's a buzz in the air. There's excitement on the street, so much excitement that people are now literally buying and selling their property, living like it was the end of the world. I've always found that there's a strange power in mobs. It almost doesn't matter what they're doing. If they're doing something really right, perhaps, just because uh, there is this loud cloud of a mob, it seems to attract attention and gather a following. And if they're doing something wrong, the same power seems to be there, like magnet, magnets being stacked upon other magnets. The larger they get, the more stronger their pull. Ananias and Sapphira appear to be drawn into the church for whatever reason, but none of those details are actually given Something of a time lapse is embodied in the text where they had not only learned what is happening, uh, they've had time to go and sell their property and to contrive a plan between one another. And so Ananias comes first. As the husband, he comes bearing a gift that he lays at Peter's feet. If you pause for a moment, and you didn't know the rest of the story, sometimes it's hard to read the Bible as though we don't know what's about to happen. Uh, but if you stopped... At the point of him laying this at Peter's feet, you'd be tempted to say, this is a good guy. After all, has he not done a good thing? He has sold a piece of property in order to give it to the church. People are hungry and desperate, and Ananias has, in a certain sense, stepped into that gap, what appears to be sacrificially. He took the time and the effort to go and to sell a piece of property that he owned. Why would we not commend Ananias? Why would we not list him among the good guys of the Bible? Well, then comes the problem. His giving is superficial. It is showy. Long before he stands before Peter, 
he is already bowed down to Satan. A very important question is raised. When did Ananias sin? When did Ananias sin? Was it when he lied to Peter? The answer is yes. Was it when he held back part of the proceeds? The answer is yes. But when you think about it, his sin began long before even those things took place. It began when his heart contrived this plan of lying and stealing. And there's a great warning to be found here. Sin begins in the heart. We see Ananias standing upon the stage performing actions that were long ago contemplated and only now are being worked out. Sin began in the heart. As scripture says, from the heart flows the issues of life. From the heart, blood flows to the hands, to the feet, and even to the lips. And from the heart, so does sin as well. What Ananias conceived in his heart, his hands, his feet, and his lips accomplished. And this has always been the way that sin works, isn't it? Sins always work this way. Adam and Eve in the garden, when did they sin? When their hand touched the fruit? Or when they began to covetously desire and their hearts had already walked far from God? Or Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane, was it when he lied or when he agreed to do so in his heart? So here's the point. It's not a pleasant one, but it's true. Sin enters the heart and then it masters the body, head to toe. That's what happened to Ananias. So from the heart, let's move then to the mouth. This is our second point, deception with the mouth. If I can say it this way, this is such a serious text and I feel the cloud of it over you already. Peter proves to be something of a scary dude in this text. Peter is not to be played with. And it's interesting that it's Peter when you think about it. Peter is not at this point in Acts chapter chapter 5, the cowering lamb of yesteryear, but now a courageous lion whose roar actually threatens. But isn't it interesting that Ananias should stand before Peter when you think about it? Uh, This is something Peter knows about. Peter is a little familiar with this game. He and Ananias sadly have some things in common. And in a manner of speaking, Peter sees right through Ananias. Say it like this. How Peter knows, we do not know. The Lord must have revealed this to him. But Peter knows a good liar when he sees one. Because he's found one in the mirror many, many times. Think of what we have here. Two of the best liars in the New Testament standing face to face. It's true. Two of the best liars in the New Testament standing face to face with one great difference. One liar standing here is repentant, while the other still wears the mask, hoping that no one can see through. But Peter sees straight through because God sees straight through. And what Ananias does here is not simply condemned, it is condemned as being categorically satanic. Verse 3 elevates, graduates the accusation. Ananias, how could you do this? You have not simply lied to man, but you have lied to God as well. How has Satan filled your heart to do such things? That's terrifying. A terrifying accusation. 
especially when you think about it like this, from the outside, Ananias actually looks pretty good. He looks religious. He looks generous. He has showed up to the party. He's following this righteous mob, if you will. But in reality, he is nothing more than a whitewashed tomb. Inside of him is nothing but death and deceit. And Peter walks it out as though putting Ananias on immediate trial. Ananias, while the property was unsold, was it not still yours to keep? No one forced you to give it away. While the property was unsold, you could have kept it. And when the property was sold, you could have kept the proceeds. No one forced you to do this. No one sat staring over your shoulder. Ananias, there was no need to sell your property in the first place. Ananias, there was no need to lie about it when you did. But now he has not only sold the property, he has lied about the profit that he made. And here again, we can stop and ask the question, why? What a bizarre character. I mean, why sell the property and then keep back part of the proceeds and lie about it? Well, again, there are times when people do the right things simply because they're popular. Simply following the crowd. One could argue, and several suggest, that at the end of the day, what Ananias really wanted was the applause and praise and approval of man. He wanted to be famous more than he wanted to be faithful. He wanted to give without True sacrifice. He wanted to appear holy in the presence of others, something that Jesus would elsewhere condemn. He loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. But God sees the heart. Man sees the gift and says, Wow, Ananias, that's a big stack of dough. But God sees the heart, Ananias. My child, what have you done? It's a great sadness for any parent to learn, however it comes to light, that their child has lied to, the, lied to them. And even worse, to imagine that they had mastered the art of looking their parents right into the eyes and lying. There are a few darker days in a parent's life. But it makes God not simply sad. In this text, he is angry. And it makes a profound point. It is the lightning bolt of the text, beloved, that God cannot and he will not be mocked. Ananias holds back the true prophet only to receive the wages of sin. And that brings us to our third point. Death. Wages of sin. Verse 5 describes the bitter sudden end to Ananias. The language is noteworthy. He fell down and breathe his last. The same language will be used almost identically uh, describing his wife here in, such, in a few moments. But when you think about it, what a sad commentary on one's life that the last words to come out of your mouth would be a lie to man and to God. What a horrible way to end. The last thing he said was a lie. What do you do with that at a funeral? Death comes quickly. The wages of sin strikes swiftly. Surely Ananias did not wake up that morning planning to breathe his final breath, but then again, who does? But he may have woke up that morning planning to lie to God. Such a plan may have taken days to contrive. Such a plan would have certainly taken days to execute. 
to sell his property, to list it, so to speak, to close upon it. And Ananias is not alone. Here's a real sad feature to the text. Shortly after his death, his wife comes on the scene. This is something like bitter irony, not bittersweet, simply bitter irony. This is not only a famous couple, they really are, in many respects, the perfect couple. Perfect for each other. Perfect in crime. Perfect in lying. Perfect in stealing. Perfect in deceit. They are perfectly false. It is sometimes said that misery loves company. Sin loves it even more. Sin comes, and it comes in with a well-tuned song of deceit. Sapphira comes in. She and her husband have practiced this, you can tell. They've gotten their story straight, kind of like criminals who know if they are caught, they have to back each other up and make sure that their stories are in harmony one with another as they stand before a judge and their accuser. So Ananias and Sapphira have premeditated not only what they will do, but how they will lie about it together, lest somehow they are separated. Their stories would match and mirror one another. And Sapphira, being, if you will, a submissive wife to an unfaithful husband, lies just as her covenant head. She sticks to the script. Peter, knowing the truth, gives her a chance to tell the truth. I mean, this is almost bizarre when you think about it. She's got a moment here. She has a chance, if you will, to tell the truth. To say it differently, Sapphira's guilt and death are not a foregone conclusion. Peter asks a question that might have given her the opportunity to tell him, yeah, you know, actually, we only sold it for this. She could have told the truth, but instead she propels the lie. And what seems almost baffling, hard to understand, is somehow she is completely unaware of the sad news that her lying husband is dead. One would think that in a small town, news like this would travel fast, but apparently in God's providence, it did not travel to her. And I I don't mean this uh, in in a flippant sense, but she really is a fool. The word idiot would not be misplaced here. Should she not have noticed the absence of her husband? Great fear has already fallen upon the crowd, we are told in the text, when Ananias is dead. Should she not not only notice the absence of her husband, but the presence of a crowd, fear having fell fell upon them all? And what about his question? Did not Peter's question almost seem something like a trap? Sapphira, tell me, how much did you sell the property for? If you were Sapphira, you'd look around, your husband's not there. The crowd's all watching, straight-faced. She'd be able to feel the pressure in the room. But here's a point. It's a pretty important point. Sin is irrational. Sin is irrational. It's not bothered by the truth. It, it lacks the sight to see the obvious Sin is irrational. It is blind to the truth and it only knows one reality, one all-consuming and blinding reality, what it wants. And she is blind to the truth. This is the real heart of the problem. The heart wants what the heart wants. Sapphira wants to lie. Sapphira, blind to the absence of her husband, the presence of the crowd, 
is not confounded by the truth of what is so painfully obvious to us. But neither truth, reason, or even reality can stop sin from sometimes wrapping its cords around people's hearts. Let's say that sentence again. Neither sin, reason, or even reality can stop sin from sometimes wrapping its cords around people's hearts. This is why people do really stupid stuff. And this is really dumb, what happens in this text. Why is it so? Because sin is not simply, beloved, something that is outside us. Sadly, it is also inside of us. Think about it. When you were a child, when did you learn to sin? Who had to teach you to lie? No one. It's built into the dough. It's part of our nature. We inherit it from our first parents. No one, how to, no one had to teach us how to lie, and no one how to te- had to teach us how to die. Both are inherited from our first parents. They're simply part of our DNA. And just wait. That sweet little child you hold that's brand new will eventually lie without your help in teaching them to do so. And then these bodies will eventually die because the wages of sin is death. In the same manner that Ananias lied, his wife lied, and in the same manner that Ananias died, his wife died. They really are the perfect couple. And how fitting that they should be buried side by side, just as in their lie, so also in their death. Perfect liars. Well, this has been an encouraging sermon so far, hasn't it? There are some things that we should take away from this sobering text. We're not done. There are a number of things that we still need to walk out together. Uh, This is a powerful text in a lot of reasons. It should be a sobering text. It should be one of those that you walk away thinking about a handful of different things. But, But the first thing I want you to walk away thinking about is actually not you. One of the great things about this text is what it reveals to us about the Holy Spirit. We read from the Belgic Confession, something we don't read from very often, reflected on the Holy Spirit, someone we don't think about often enough. This text is actually one of the great New Testament proof texts for the person and the deity of the Holy Spirit. In verse 3, it is the Holy Spirit that Ananias has lied to, not simply to man. But in verse 4, there is an equal sign put in between the Holy Spirit and And God, Ananias, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Ananias, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, who is God. In verse 9, the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit that Jesus promised that he would send when he rose from the dead. is not a force, is not a thing, but rather a person, a person who can be spoken to, a person who can listen, a person who can be lied to, a person who can be grieved, a person who can get angry, a person who can put someone to death. A life-giving spirit who also can bring the sentence of death. The Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5, beloved, is nothing other than the third person of the Trinity. God, as is the Father, as is the Son, One God in three persons. And then there's something else beautiful that happens for the first time in this text in Acts chapter 5. 
If you notice in verse 11, it's the first time in the New Testament we hear a wonderful and familiar word, church. This is the first use of the word. This is the first time this gathering of people, the spark that begun in Acts 2, Pentecost, is people that have now gathered for the first time, they are called church here in Acts chapter 5, verse 11. And how fitting, how fitting it is. Perhaps uh, you wonder why. Well, notice what happens when Ananias and Sapphira die. They are not only called church, but we are told that great fear came upon them all. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Why is it fitting that we should first learn of the word church here? Because the early church gathered did something the church should do and something we struggle to do. Be with me here. They took sin seriously. They recognized that God was not to be mocked. They recognized that God was a life-giving God and that God would not be mocked, that he is holy, 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 and that he was to be taken seriously. In fact, this is the third thing. Not only did they take it seriously, more importantly, God took it seriously. God took sin so seriously that he put Ananias and Sapphira to death. Do you believe that your God is that holy? That he's that serious? Do you believe that sin is that serious? Well, God took it so seriously. Not only did he put Ananias and Sapphira to death, this is where the gospel comes in. He sent his son into the world to die for our sins. That's how seriously God takes sin. In many ways, Jesus proves to be the opposite of Ananias and Sapphira. If deceit was found in their heart and in their mouths, no deceit, we are told, was found in his mouth, yet he was condemned as though he was a liar. In fact, ironically, yet in some ways fittingly, inscribed over his head at the cross was a false accusation, so to speak, king of the Jews. What they meant as an accusation that he falsified such claims, we know to be true. He really was king. Not only did Jesus never tell a lie, but beloved, guess who he died for? Liars. And the bad news is, this is a room full of them. And the good news is, because Jesus died for us, we, beloved, get to live for him. He died for his church. He died for people like you and me. And not only did he die, he rose from the dead and he sent this spirit whom he was referred to in the past, but now has come in person. And we understand more and more that that person truly is the Spirit of the Lord, the one who raised Jesus from the dead and continues to give life to the church. Ananias and Sapphira took their final breath on that day, lying. But perhaps it's better to say the Holy Spirit literally took their breath away. But that same Spirit, beloved, for you is what? Life-giving. The point of the text is not this. Tell a lie and God's going to strike you dead. That's not the point. And yet, the point of the text is, we should take sin seriously. A lion and stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Ye who think of sin but lightly, here its guilt may estimate. 
God takes these things very seriously, so much so that he sent his son. The son takes it so seriously, so much so that he gave his life and then sends his life-giving spirit that rather than takes our breath away, grants us the breath of life. Is there any surprise that one of the first things that Jesus did when he rose from the dead is he breathed on his disciples and they received his spirit. A spirit that compels them, beloved, not to lie to God, to man, even to ourselves, but rather compels us to tell the truth. What effect do you think the death of Ananias and Sapphira had on the church? Not only would it disincline them to lie, arguably what it does, and this is what you see as you keep reading the chapters, it propels them to tell the truth. It propels them to tell the truth. They become converts from liars and deceivers in whom the truth is not found to truth-telling worshipers who give their hearts to God. One of the first portraits that you see of the church, where you first get the word, is that the church is a mixed bag. And I want to say just a couple words here as we conclude. The first church portrait that we have is one of a mixed bag. And there's, there's something helpful and very pastoral about it. The first time you hear the word church, you see that the church is imperfect. Ananias and Sapphira were part of the crowd. And it's arguably the case uh, that there are still Ananiases and Sapphiras around. But I have good news. If you, beloved, have bound up in your heart deceit, lie Lying to yourself, lying to man, lying to God. If like Ananias, you come to church wearing the mask, not only does God see through, he gives great grace to great sinners. And great sinners need a great Savior. So take off the mask. Let the gospel not simply unmask you. Let it clothe you in the righteousness of Christ that you would no longer be defined by irrational deceit, but rather the truth of God's word. Second, many will be famous. How many will be faithful? What's your goal? What matters? Do you want to be famous? At the expense of being faithful? More and more as we get older in the faith, if you look around the room, you'll find heads nodding in a moment. Being famous doesn't matter at all. Being faithful matters a lot. Finishing well, finishing strong. And I want to ask, a, I want to ask my missionary question again. I'm, I'm kind of intrigued with this. I'm going to pull the thread. I'm not letting you off just yet. I'm very intrigued. If you were here last week, you could tell with the story of Barnabas. In many ways, the story of Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira are, are two sides of the same story. One, a portrait of faithfulness. Another, a portrait of famousness without faithfulness. But here's the point. <clears throat> if in Barnabas we see a man who gives not simply of his time, his talent, and his treasure, but by the end of the book, one who gives his life away, Ananias and Sapphira seeking to keep their life, lost it, which will we be? And are there not those here among us whom God may indeed be calling to give their life away? 
for the sake of the gospel. That sin is so serious. Death is so serious. And the gospel being the only answer to both. That if that should take over our whole lives, what a wonderful thought that would be. If God should raise up many young male and female Barnabases. How do you do that in the plural? Never mind. You know what I mean. That would be wonderful. One of my favorite quotes, the one that's become the most popular of John Calvin, put a few different ways, but in some, here I am, O Lord, I offer you my heart fully and completely. What did Ananias and Sapphira do horribly wrong? They only gave God part of their heart. And they held back the rest in deceit and self-preservation. What did Barnabas do right? He offered God his heart wholly and completely. Do you want to be famous? Or do you want to be faithful? It all comes down to one question. Who has your heart? Let's pray. Oh Lord and our God, there are times when your word seems to walk us up to light high places from which we can see beautiful and pleasant valleys and almost nothing else. And there are other times, oh Lord, where your word seems to walk us to dangerous edges where we are soberly warned about the wages of sin and how irrational and deceitful sin can be. This is probably one of those latter texts. And we ask, O Lord, that you'd help us to not miss the moment. That you'd help us to recognize that even in this beautiful portrait in the book of Acts of the work of the Holy Spirit carrying out the great commission that Jesus promised to the end of the age, that we should not think of sin lightly. We should recognize that you take it so seriously that the Son of God had to come into the world to deal with it effectively. But we also recognize, O Lord, that your church is called out of darkness and into the light of Christ, out of self-deception, into uh, that which is truth. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to live in the truth, to walk in the truth, and when you are finished with us, to die in the truth. And I ask, O Lord, here that this day, no one would leave from here still wearing a mask, that you would pierce our hearts, and that you yourself would unmask us, that we would meet you in truth rather than utter our final breath, still bound up in self-deceit. And if you were pleased, O Lord, to raise up young men or women who would desire to give their lives to the service of the King, to the service of the truth, what a wonderful thing that would be. And for all of us, Lord, help us to have very little regard for being famous, but might we strive, young and old, male and female, married and single, every one of us, to be faithful in your sight, and to that end, to offer you our hearts wholly and completely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.